Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to be in various passages this morning, but we'll focus primarily in Genesis 6. And as we're collecting up your gifts and, and your sacrifices for the kingdom, I'd like to share something this morning. Uh, the Word of God says that we're to give honor where honor is due, and today I know that we can't always do this, and every time you necessarily pick one person you want to bring honor to, you may miss three or four and frustrate them who deserve it just as much. So I hope you'll uh, allow me just a little bit of grace this morning as I share with you something that I think we as a church need to stop and just remember. This past week on Friday here in this room, we had a memorial service for Ann Witherspoon. Uh, Anne was one of the charter members of Christ Church, who for the past 65 years served here, loved here, and sacrificed for this church. It was a celebration of the life of a good mom, a good wife, and a good person. It was a goodbye to a remnant of our church's history, however. She represented more than just a lady named Anne. She was a part of a generation of people whose shoulders we stand on today because of their sacrifices. I like to say, we sit in the shade and eat the fruit of trees we didn't plant, And if we ever forget that, we will have forgotten one of the core values of gratitude. The sacrifices they made with their hands and their hearts, the amount of time that they put in to make sure that the glory of God was first before any denomination or any man's wishes was found. We're blessed to have what we have here at Christ Church because of people just like Ann. The price they paid to be faithful each and every week uh, to make sure the building was here, (laughs) to buy the property, to expend the money to build the very first building to make sure the grounds were taken care of, supplies were purchased, and people were cared for. A chapter in our church's story ended last Monday night. So fittingly, on January 1st, we begin a new chapter of many, I hope, until Jesus returns here at Christ Church. I pray that when we're done, the sacrifices of people like Anne will be part of our story. That instead of just being grateful that they did it, I'd like to call all of us as we begin a new year to say, what's going to be our role in making sure that one day when they say goodbye to us, they will see that we cared about God's church, that we cared about the gospel, that we cared about people we don't even know getting to know who Jesus is. Anne was a representative of a generation. And think about this. This is what blows my mind. For 65 plus years, there has always been somebody in this building who was there when it started as a house church 65 years ago. This is the first Sunday. That's not true. So now it's our time. It's our chance. It's our purpose to be a part of a church that not only cares about who's here today, but the investment we're going to make in a generation that Anne would never know their names, but because of what she and many others did, we can come into this place today and worship Jesus. So we give honor where honor is due. It's a new chapter. I hope you'll join us in writing it, because that's why we're here. And when we're gone, may another generation be here because of the sacrifices we paid, just like we sit here today because of the sacrifices they paid. So, let me ask you a really hard question after all of that. Does anybody know why on a railroad track in the United States that the rails are set at four feet, eight, and one half inches apart? I know you all came here for this, right? (laughs) You're all like, I really want to know, Mark. Well, I'm going to tell you. I'm glad you came. Do you know that in the, the United States, the gauge between the tracks in the United States Railroad is four feet, eight, and one half inches wide? Do you know why? Because when President Lincoln commissioned that the railroads be built from the east to the west and throughout the nation, one of the things he did is hired British expatriates who had built the European tram system. 
And they came over with their tools and their gauges and all their measurements, and they built our tracks to be just like the tram tracks back in Europe. Well, why did they build those that way in Europe? Well, because they realized before the tram that they were building wagons. And the width between the tires of the wagons were four feet, eight and one half inches wide. So they wanted to figure out, well, why were wagons built that way? Well, the wagon wheels had to fit into the ruts of the roads that the Roman chariots had created when they built the road system at the very beginning throughout all of Europe and Asia. So they tried to figure out, well, why were the, the wagons of the Romans, why were their wheels set at four feet, eight and one half inches? Do you want to know why? Because that was the measurement behind the quarter end of two war horses. You want to know why the railroad in the United States, is, the tracks are four feet, eight and one half inches wide, because that's as wide as two horses' butts. <laughs> now you know. If you ever went on Jeopardy, I expect a small cut of your winnings. <clears throat> Sometimes asking the why will reveal something that will surprise you. None of us would have ever guessed this, but research went all the way back and said, there really wasn't a great reason why the railroad tracks are four feet, eight and a half inches, except church people know this. We've always done it that way. Sometimes the why is revealing. So I want to ask you as we start a new year together, why are you here? I don't mean at church. Why are you breathing? What is your purpose? What is the end game of all of this? Before we ask what we're doing, we need to answer the question, why are we doing anything? This morning, what I'd like to do, because we're going to be taking January through May this year as a church, and we're going to continue this conversation of how do we walk this discipleship. And there will be internal and external discouragements and obstacles and challenges to being a disciple. There are every day of our lives. Some of them we put on ourselves and some we receive from outside. But how do you and I grow and handle this walk of discipleship? How can we go through the tough times? And so I'd like to begin this morning by talking about something that matters, using the story of a man named Noah and talking about the why before we talk about the what. Have you noticed a positive trend in the food industry recently? I really do like it. So like when I go to Chick-fil-A and I pull in the 70-lane drive-through in Joplin, <laughs> and there are more people that work there than at Disneyland, right? <laughs> and I drive in there and I order my 12-piece chicken nuggets, and the reason I order 12-piece is because they don't sell 18. Can I have an amen? <laughs> All right? And when I go through and I pay and I drive out and then I see the greatest job in the world, the condiment person at Chick-fil-A standing outside with this rack of goodness and I drive up and they say, would you like sauces? And I would say, yes. And I just ordered a 12-piece nugget and they say, how many sauces would you like? And I say, 12. Yes. <laughs> Don't judge. I could eat however I want. I want one packet per nugget. That's the way God would have it. And I say, could I have six or eight? And they always respond with what, church? My pleasure. I think they're lying, but I'm glad they're lying. <laughs> because whether or not it's their pleasure, it certainly is mine. <laughs> and then I drive through Culver's because they have the best French fries. Don't text me, I'm right. And I drive through Culver's and I drive through and they say, would you like ketchup? And I said, no, I'd like tartar sauce. And they look at me like I'm strange. I'm like, don't judge, I paid. <laughs> and they give me tartar sauce for my French fries and I drive away and I say, thank you. And what do they say? My pleasure. I love it. I don't know if it's true, but I love it. Because what they're saying is, no, it's part of my purpose here to make you happy. I want to talk to you today about my pleasure. What is your pleasure? What is the thing that you do for somebody else that just brings you joy? 
brings you purpose, brings you life. Because, see, I want you to know that I know what God's pleasure is because the scriptures show me. Revelation 4.11, God has created everything and it is for God's pleasure that they exist and were created. See, God didn't create this world because he needed us. He didn't create this world because he needed something to do. He created all of his world because it brought him pleasure to bring us into it, to serve with us and love us and be with us and have relationship with us. He did it for his pleasure. You and I are his pleasure. And he doesn't say here, it's interesting, he doesn't say that it's God's pleasure. Like uh, Psalm 149.4 says, the Lord takes pleasure in his people. I want you to notice, it doesn't say he takes pleasure in his best people, his elite people, his famous people, his talented people. He says his people. You and I bring God pleasure. And what brings God pleasure from his people? Well, it's a word used in scripture called worship. It's an interesting word because we, we link worship to music or ritual or ceremony or an event on a Sunday morning in a particular place during a particular time. And yet, those things all include worship, but they're not worship. Worship is living a life pleasing to God. That's what it is to worship. It's not something we receive or evaluate or estimate. Worship is not good because you liked it. It's not bad because you disliked it. It's, it's not something because it fit what we wanted. Worship is actually, can only be received by the thing being worshipped, not by the people doing the worshipping. Worship is to feel, to enjoy, and to prosper in the love of God. It's to feel, enjoy, and prosper in loving God. That's what it means to worship. It's an experience that transcends location. It's not an activity, it's an ambition. Worship is the value and focus we place on something outside of ourselves. If we spend our time evaluating worship, we've just realized who we're really worshiping, our own desires. But when we worship God, we bring God pleasure because we're living in the relationship that he came to bring us. The reason he created us was to bring this all together and to do what he's asked us to become and do. Romans 12.1 makes it so clear. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So when we worship God and God is thrilled by it and he's pleased by it, it brings him joy, we can respond, my pleasure. You see, in seeking God's pleasure, we find our own. That's not just a gimmicky preacher statement. I want you to know that if something's missing in your life, it's not the things you're pursuing right now, it's God. And when you understand that, then the pleasure that you're seeking can only be found in the pleasure of God because he created you and I for this. We are his pleasure for a reason because in pleasing God, we'll end up finding the pleasure of our lives. Ephesians 5, 8, and 10 says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light and find out what pleases the Lord. To walk this new life, to walk in this hope and this promise, to do these things is what will bring God pleasure and ultimately reveal to you our pleasure. I'd like to look at Noah this morning. Now, I know you know the story of Noah. At least most people will. They at least know he built a boat and survived a flood. But I actually want to go deeper into Noah's story to talk to you about the kind of person he was and the choices he made, the why before the what. Why did Noah build an ark? Well, because it was going to rain. No, no, no. He, he built an ark probably in a time where he didn't understand what rain was. Living hundreds of miles from the ocean, he didn't understand what a flood was. 
He had no idea how God was going to do what God said he was going to do. And that's what I want you to understand. The why Noah built the boat is more important than what he built. And when we see this, I think it helps all of us as we walk this walk of faith to actually experience what it's going to take when obstacles rear their heads or when negativity comes upon us or when frustration comes. You can focus so much on the what, but if you don't know the why, I doubt it can be sustained. Genesis 6, 8 makes it real clear. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah pleased God. Now, there's not a whole lot about Noah saying that he was exceptional at A, B, or C. It just simply says that he found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. When God created the world, he looked down and he said it was good. It brought him pleasure. When he created man and woman together, he said it is very good. It brought him pleasure. Within 100 years or so, Humanity had gone away from pleasing God to pleasing themselves. God looked for one person who would live his life to please him, and he found him. His name was Noah. And his life may be instructive for us when obstacles come. Like Peter Buckland talked about last week in our message. The church is drawn together of disciples making disciples so that we can all journey together and strengthen each other and fulfill our purposes. But that is going to require that each one of us do what Noah did and choose to follow God when nobody else does. And that will begin to draw the crowd. So how do we bring God pleasure? Looking at the life of Noah, I learned four quick things. Number one, that Noah loved him above everything else, and so should we. If you want to know how to please God, love him above everything else. So how do I know this? Right? How do I know this is true? Because to be honest with you, I, I don't find any words recorded of Noah saying he loves God. I find no poetry he wrote, no songs he wrote, or no songs about him. So I have very little evidence to make the point I make except the actions that are required in Scripture. For instance, in the book of Hosea, the Old Testament prophet tells us this, speaking for God, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. God just wants us to know him. He wants us to be with him. He doesn't want to be a burden. He wants to be in the relationship he created us for. We are his pleasure, and we were created to find pleasure in him. It's the why. You see, God wants a living relationship with you, not a legal one. And I want to say that. If I say nothing else, I don't know that I'll say anything more important this morning than this. There are so many of us that have a legal relationship with God. We've gone to church. We got saved, whatever that means. And so now God is legally obligated to save us when the world ends. Not true. You have a living relationship with God, not a legal one. A living relationship is a covenant. A legal relationship is a contract. God didn't offer you a contract. He offered you a covenant. And he is doing all the work to keep it alive and fresh and real. And he invites us into that. You see, in Genesis 6, 9, it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. I could insert a joke there, which wouldn't have been hard because it was a pretty creepy culture at that time. But he was blameless among the people of his time and he walked faithfully with God. How do I know? That Noah loved God because he chose God above everything else. How do I know that? Because he walked faithfully with God. He had a relationship with God where he was faithful to God in covenant over and above anything else in the world. How do I know that Noah loved God? Because when the flood ended and they landed on dry land, the very first thing that Noah did was built an altar. 
He took the fundamental building blocks that God had given him to repopulate the earth, and he took some of those things and gave them back to God, took them out of his own power and control, sacrificed them back to God. That's how much he loved God, is he wanted God to know how much he loved him. See, when we come to God with no other agenda but to love him for who he is, then we will have worshiped. We bring pleasure to God when we love him above everything else and when we trust him completely. The scriptures say that without faith, it is impossible to, can you finish it? Please God. Our pleasure can only be found in walking by faith. And God's pleasure can only be found when we walk in faith. Psalm 147, 11 says, the Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. God is looking for people who choose by faith to trust him. Hebrews eleven seven says, By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is keeping with faith. That's a loaded sentence right there, or two sentences rather. But it says that what Noah chose to do is when God came to him and said he's going to flood the earth, we have little understanding of whether or not Noah even knew what a flood would be. There's very little rain in that region of the land. I'm told less than 10 inches a year. He's hundreds of miles away from the ocean, as we've already talked about. Now, for many of us in the children's books, it says that the rain came down. Well, rain did come, but it was when the earth opened up and released all of the water from the firmament that the earth flooded. Noah would have had no idea that this is how God was going to do it. But he walked by faith. Because God told him he would, Noah trusted that. And trust requires action. I say this often here, and I'm unapologetic for it. It's not because I can't think of anything else to say, but I think it crystallizes for me and has helped me in my growth. Faith is founded on two principles about God that we have to hold to. Is God good and is God wise? Faith is founded on this. Do we believe that God has our best interests at heart and that he is good all the time? And second of all, is he wise enough to know what we don't? And when he says something is, is that really the way it is? And your faith will stumble or grow premised on whether or not you believe God is good and God is wise. When we talk about trusting him completely, it comes down to whether or not we believe in his goodness. It's the, part, it's the second prong of the faith that we believe, we trust because we believe he's good, that God has our best interests in store, that we are his pleasure and he wants to be ours and he's offering us this life of covenant relationship with him that's beautiful and rich. Noah's faith and his trust saved his family, but do you understand it saved you too? Because if Noah had not trusted God, it would have been over. We wouldn't be here. There wouldn't have been generations that followed. Because one man trusted God and loved God. And facing the obstacles he faced, and there were many, he succeeded. Are you and I willing to go through the difficulties of trusting when it's not easy? When people don't agree with us? When you're made fun of? Because Noah faced every bit of that. So we love him with everything and trust him completely. And thirdly, we obey him wholeheartedly. This is the second prong of faith. That we obey him wholeheartedly. Not just obey him, but we do it with a passion to bring him pleasure. James 2.24, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. It's interesting. James knew this because James was the brother, half-brother of, of Jesus. 
and he knew Jesus' story. He didn't believe Jesus' story until the resurrection, and then he became one of the greatest proponents of it. And he realized that there's a difference between saying we believe that God is good and actually believing that God is wise, the second prong of faith. That God knows what he's talking about, that God's ways work. See, I didn't earn birth into our home. I'm fully aware of this. My mother and father conceived me. My mother gave birth to me, and at about the age of, I don't know, two or three years old, I became cognizant I was. I had a personality. I had an attitude. I had desires. I had interests. I had opinions. And I became aware that I was a part of a family. But I didn't earn my way into my family. I was gifted my family. And they brought me to life. And yet, because of that, I couldn't sit around and go, well, I have no contribution since I didn't choose to be here. I'm just going to float. No, I found out really easy I could please my parents. I found out faster I could displease them, but we'll talk about that another day. I found out I could please my mom and dad. And you know what I learned I could please my mom and dad with? Doing what they asked. And I found out with my dad really quick, if he did it the first time, he was a lot more pleased than if he had to ask you the second time. In fact, he had a rule. Don't, ask, don't make me ask you twice what, to do what I've already asked you once. Yes, sir. That was a good life lesson. It took me a long time to learn it, but it was a good life lesson. <laughs> And I found out I could bring pleasure to my mom and dad by not only doing what they asked, but anticipating what they would have asked in doing that too. How is that any different with our relationship with our Father in heaven? Who simply says, no, am I good? Yes. Do you trust me that I'm wise? Yes. Then why won't you do what I ask? Or, do you think I'm good? Yes, sir. Do you think I'm wise? You are wise. And I love that you trust me and obey what I ask you to do. Jesus said it clearly. If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Why? Because we have to and we're fearful of going to hell? No, because we believe he's good and we believe he's wise. Noah didn't just didn't build a boat. He built it to the exact expectations. Some have speculated it may have taken him over 600 years to build it. He couldn't run to Lowe's. If he needed a two-by-four, he had to cut it out of the middle of a tree he had to cure it, he had to shape it, he had to figure out how to affix it to the other pieces, he had to figure out how to tar it all together and then get inside of it. it. Took him years of struggle, of criticism, of blisters. There was no convenience to what God asked him to do and yet Noah did exactly what God asked him to do the way he asked him to do it. Noah wasn't a perfect man, but he had a perfect father. Psalm 119, verses 33 and 34 have become some of my favorite verses in that 176-verse psalm. Here's why. It says, Teach me, Lord, the ways of your decrees that I may follow it to the end. Give me understanding so that I may keep your law. Here's what I've learned. And I'm probably the only person in the room who feels this way. I'm being facetious. Sometimes I don't want to do what God tells me to do. I'm a pastor. I'm paid to do what God tells me to do. And sometimes I don't want to. And sometimes I don't. And yet there's sometimes I hurt because I know I should and I wonder what's wrong with me that I don't want to. And then I read the 119th Psalm. Teach me the ways of your decrees that I may follow it. Give me understanding. What I realize is I sometimes can't change my want to, but God can. And when I open the word of God and realize how good he is and how wise he is, it helps alter my want to. Where now I obey wholeheartedly rather than simply obey. Romans 8, 7 and 8 reminds us of the challenge we all have over the question of whether God is good and God is wise. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. 
It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Living a life that questions the goodness and the wisdom of God will lead you to a life that only leaves your goodness and your wisdom to save you. And it doesn't work. It's natural for me to be self-centered. God has to do a work, a sanctifying work in my heart so that I can love him, trust him, obey him, and fourthly, fulfill our purposes. This is interesting to me. If you still have your Bibles open, look at Genesis 9.1. It's at the end of the flood and the delivery of God. There's something about purposes here. Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. What I think is beautiful about this and shows the goodness of God is that God doesn't give Noah a list of paybacks. Here's now all the things you have to do to get even for all the sins that have been committed. He doesn't. He actually only gives Noah the command that he gave Adam and Eve back in the garden to start with. Notice this. God's purposes for us have not changed, and they won't. Why is the rail set at four feet, eight and one half inches wide? Well, in America, it's a dumb reason. Why are God's rails set exactly where they are? For a perfect reason. You see, even though in our sin... We are imperfect. God's purposes have not changed because we rely on his righteousness, not our own. And so we can trust that he's good and that he's wise. And so he says to Adam and Eve, reign with me in the work of filling the earth and lording, reigning over it. He says to Noah, hey, let's go back to where we started. Fill the earth with people who know who I am, who are committed to my purposes, to stay on the rails, if you will, the perfect way I designed them. See, what I'm saying is that everything in life can be done as an act of worship. If you live for his pleasure, it will restore your purpose. In Psalm 37, verse 23 and 24, I'm going to read it once and then we're going to read it again. I want you to hear it the first time and then I want to show you how I think it fits. In Psalm 37, verse 23, it says, The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Though he may stumble, he will not fall. For the Lord upholds him with his hand. I want to walk through that with you and have you see that from the life of Noah. Let's begin again in 23 of Psalm 37. The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. God was pleased with Noah and Noah was pleased with God. So God gave Noah a purpose and Noah fulfilled that purpose. His steps were firm because God laid before him what he was to do. So many times we wonder what the will of God is. It is in scripture. There is a purpose for all of us. It is to find our pleasure in God and forsake the pleasures of the world. And it's to allow God's pleasure to be on us. And so Noah was a man who was not perfect, but he was pleasing to God. And then it says in verse 24, though he may stumble, and he did. There were mistakes. There was attitudes. There was frustration. There was pain. There was discouragement. There was the sweat of his brow. There was 600 years of labor. He will not fall. For the Lord upholds him with his hand. Noah's an amazing man, but only because God was with him. Based on himself, he wouldn't have had any idea what the flood was. He would have no idea when it was going to start. He never could have got the animals in the ark. He never could have built the ark by himself. But he followed God's perfect design. He stayed on the rails. And God guided him home. Sometimes the why explains the what. Noah built an ark. That's what he did. Why did he build it? Because he loved God. Trusted God obeyed God, found his purpose in God. And what will get us from one place to the other in discipleship are the same things. 
love, trust, obedience, and a compelling purpose that answers the why we're here. So when God looks down with pleasure on our worship, our response will be what, church? My pleasure. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.